Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to Batflips and Nerds, the baseball podcast of the British Twist. I'm Darius Austin and I'm very excited today to be joined by an extremely special guest, a former major leaguer who's turned his hand to analytics and uh, also the co-host of a web show now. It's uh, former, former Oakland A's player Nate Fryman. Nate, thank you for joining us. Hey Darius, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really great to have you on and uh, we've got a lot of good questions. Um, I know my, my uh, co-host John McGee has sent in uh, quite a few. He can make it tonight, but uh, definitely a lot, lot of things you want to get asked about. Um, so I kind of wanted to start with the the show that you're doing um, on FanCred, uh, the launch angle, um, which you're doing with with Josh Zide, who, who also was going to join us and unfortunately couldn't make it tonight. Um, so I kind of just wanted to, to hear a little bit about that. How did it get started and, and what should people expect if they, they tune in? It's, it's, a, it's an app out of Austin, and they do this really cool platform that's live video, and you can call in from anywhere in the world and in real time ask a face-to-face question. So that's something that is new to me. It's a really cool technology. And so Josh Zadid and I played together in a bunch of places in the minor leagues. We played together in the World Baseball Classic, and we played together with Houston. So he's a guy that I know really well. We go back a long way, and... It's fun talking baseball. And we sort of mix our experiences in the minor leagues and the big leagues with we're both getting into analytics and we inject that into the conversation too. And we have a really good time. Yeah, I've, I've watched a bit of it and it seems like you guys have a, a lot of fun and a, a good rapport there. So, uh, yeah, I definitely recommend that people check it out. Um, so you said that there that Josh is kind of getting into the analytics and you've certainly um, – made some waves lately with kind of being a, a player who's really focused heavily on on getting into R and we'll talk about that in a little while but is, is Josh kind of following a similar path or is he kind of letting you take the lead on the the deep stuff and, and that kind of thing I think I am more drawn to the numbers than maybe he is but once we started talking about the analytics and he started getting into it on his own he's getting really good at it and he'll come up with stuff for the show and just be like wow where'd you find that or How'd you come up with that? He'll just have really creative number stuff that he's he's getting into. He does a great job with it. Yeah, and and with the title of the show in mind, um, certainly we've we've heard a lot about launch angle lately and and swing changes. Uh, do you think that um, some of the newer data we're getting from Statcast and maybe the kind of the change in the environment we've seen uh, more recently with with the change in the baseball as well? Do you think that would have made a big difference to your career if you'd been playing kind of three or four years later than you did? I would have loved to, the chance to hit the baseballs that they've been hitting the last couple of years. <laughs> Definitely would have been would have been helpful, but unfortunately, it, it didn't work out. The launch angle stuff and the swing changes, I, I don't think that would have helped me. I think that I would have gotten myself in trouble by trying to hit the ball in the air more, and I was best when I tried to hit line drives. 
but it's it's really fun to watch and it's fun to talk about and yeah the launch angle it's it's sort of a nod to the the advanced metrics that are coming out of the Statcast data but it's sort of a play on words but it has the word angle in it as if it's our our take and our opinion on what's happening so we had, we had fun coming up with that yeah i think it's a particularly uh, appropriate title for the the age of baseball that we're in certainly uh with, with the analytics was that something that you were already into as a player were you talking to like the stat guys on the on the teams and that or was it kind of as you were thinking about uh retiring and, and that was when you really focused on getting into it and, and learning r and and developing your own uh, analysis of the game it's amazing how quick things have changed in the last couple of years so my last appearance in the big leagues was 2014 which is now four years ago and the pace that the analytics are being implemented in baseball is just totally accelerating. And when I was there, we just didn't have the, the stuff we have now. And I spent the three years after that in the minor leagues. And so even a greater extent, we just had the basically traditional methods, traditional scouting. We might be told he throws certain percent fastball, certain percent breaking ball. But in terms of the spin rates or all this really cool esoteric stuff, we didn't have any of it. So I have picked it up really since I got done playing. Cool. And and this is kind of something I think that a lot of teams are, are working on communicating to their players now as well. Um, I've certainly read about the, the Pirates having like a, a liaison, basically, whose sort of focus is how do we communicate this data to the players? Is that something that you think you personally would be interested in doing in the future? I think that'd be a really interesting job. It would combine some really some stuff that I'm really interested in with the actual playing to get to interact with the players and on field performance with the numbers themselves. I think that'd be a really fun job to have. Yeah, I think certainly for a, a long time it seemed like a sort of battle. We we have these two sides, and I think they're they're coming closer together now. But uh, I think for a while it was how how can I use this and. Uh, I think you personally have, have talked about how you would sometimes overthink things at the plate. And, and I think a lot of guys, yeah. that's true for, right, that they don't want people to give them all this data before they go up. They just want to see the ball hit the ball kind of approach. Absolutely. Hitting is hard enough when you're just trying to hit the baseball. And once you start factoring in angles and spin rates and stuff, it's it's pretty easy to get overwhelmed in the box and just start thinking about things that maybe aren't immediately relevant to hitting the baseball. And that would have been me if I had had all that in the batter's box. But now that I'm done and it doesn't affect me, I'm not trying to lay off sliders in the dirt and hit fastballs. I'm enjoying it just for its own sake, for the the intellectual challenge of learning about everything. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting to to hear your perspective, and it's uh, you've already done some some really interesting stuff, including uh, coming up with your own kind of metric, I believe, about um, sort of run run values per pitch. Is that right? I did. I was looking at the raw Statcast data, and they have eighty seven or something like that variables on every pitch. It's incredible, <laughs> and I was having a really good time. Basically, you can. You can find in every single pitch thrown the score. And so what you do is you just take the, the run differential on that particular pitch and you average them out over whatever time frame you want, whether it's per batter, per inning, per team, per week, per whatever. 
and it was kind of fun. I was having a good time with it. It turns out that if you look at the average run differential in just the eighth inning for a team, it is actually a pretty good predictor of your winning percentage, which I guess isn't that surprising. If It's kind of like saying what's the score late in a game for a team, and if you're usually losing, you're going to have a bad winning percentage. But I've had a good time, good time doing it. Yeah, I think it's probably quite a good way to – to learn about uh, these things as well, to, to create something like that yourself. Um, is there, what are the kind of resources if somebody listening to this is thinking, well, this is the kind of thing I'd really love to do, but I don't know where to get started. How did you teach yourself this? Were there websites or people you talk to? What, what did you go to? Yeah, I just went online. There are a lot of free resources online for learning coding. And one of the reasons I picked up R is it's, it's free, it's open source. You can just download it and start playing around with it. There's a ton of stuff basically just using Google and going to some of the mass, the, I think they're called massive online courses just for free. There, there are all these places like Coursera and some of these places where you can just basically take online courses, not necessarily for college credit, but to learn. And so that's what I did. And as I was learning, I would go onto the, the public databases, the pitch effects data and the baseball savant data. And I would just download the raw data and start manipulating it and really had a good time. Yeah, there's definitely a, a lot of resources out there and, and so much data now, I think, that for people to get stuck into, it's uh, it's exciting. And, and I can say from personal experience that something like R is uh, much more appropriate than messing around with these things in Excel, which tends to crash when you <laughs> try yeah. and challenge it well, with anything. I did actually, I started with Excel. This is before, I was so intimidated by the idea of coding that, I just thought I would start with Excel and I, I hit the limitations really fast once I started using the Savant data and, you know, you download two weeks of data from baseball Savant and it has 40,000 rows and Excel, <laughs> it's basically a non-starter to try to move that into Excel. Yeah, it, it does. It does slow down very fast. It's fine if you're doing a, a leaderboard from 2017 or something, but it, it does break down very quick with the volume that they've got, doesn't it? It, it does. And again, I really wasn't my original intention to learn to code. I, honestly, at first it was totally intimidating. and But then I just said, fine, let's do it. And it's been addicting. I it, It's it's as if I found this video game that I, I can't get enough of. So once the kids are down and you know stuff's kind of taken care of around the house, I'll fire it up and you know an hour or two will go by. Yeah, it can be a pretty, pretty cool experience. Um, I was kind of wondering, Wondering if, uh, from your perspective, the current array of stats we have is obviously incredible. But uh, with what you've done so far, and and kind of the the uh, having the side of the the player um, to approach it from, as well as having learned to code, is there something that you think there's a, a gap in, or or maybe a, an improvement that you think could be made to the way that that maybe sabermetricians have been analysing the game? Have you got some ideas about stuff you'd like to see improved on, or or maybe added to? That's a good question. I'm not approaching the numbers from the perspective of I played the game, so I know better. It's really, I played the game. Now I'm interested to know the type of sophistication that's going on in in the writing and analysis of baseball, because on the field, there's sort of a limited bandwidth that you can, you can apply. You can basically look at velocity or fastball slider combination, but we're not going to go back in into the clubhouse after the game and look at these crazy models 
and predictive algorithms for you know winning percentage strike zones aging curve we just aren't going to look at that so my goal isn't necessarily to say oh i played so i know better and let me improve on this it's oh i played i was never had the ability to really be exposed to this but this is amazing so i want to learn as much as i can yeah absolutely uh, i i kind of wanted to ask about the sort of the non-analytics side um sort of from the perspective of uh the, the kind of chemistry and makeup thing um and you wrote a, a piece recently uh, that went up at van graphs that was inspired by nick punto who was kind of known as like a scrappy guy great clubhouse guy you know good competitor uh, you also mentioned how funny he is uh how important is it having a guy like that around and, and how much do you think it brings to a team that, that can't be quantified? I wish I could tell you half the stories that I have about Nick. <laughs> I, he was unbelievable. Just, I was a rookie. Or I actually was not a rookie. I sort of perpetually felt like a rookie around the veterans, but he was a guy that came in and just went out of his way to connect with everyone in the clubhouse, really reached out to people, made them feel welcome, inclusive, just a great guy to be around. Didn't matter if you were a 15-year veteran or a guy like me who had barely been up there. He was going to he was gonna engage you and, and talk to you and just hilarious guy. Just one of those guys that would tell the funniest stories in the clubhouse. Just the stuff he would come up with would just keep guys loose. Love having guys like that around. Yeah, it sounds like a, a very important role. And, and I did want to talk about uh, you being a, a Rule 5 pick, um, which was, I, I guess, when you first came into the majors and, and presumably guys like Nick were, were good to have around. But um, in terms of the, the process that happens there, how do you find out that you get picked? And, and did the A say anything to you about their expectations? Did they say, oh, we, we want to keep you on the roster all year? Or was it very uncertain for you at the time? I'm glad you asked that. I actually have a sort of more unusual story than maybe you'd even expect. I was actually in Taiwan. I was caddying for my wife, who's a professional golfer. And with the time, with the time change, it took, it was the other side of the world. So it took place while we were sleeping and I was really excited for the rule five. I was disappointed. I didn't get out of the 40 man after playing in the fall league, but I just didn't have the fall to make myself indispensable to force the organization's hand. I just didn't play well enough. And yeah, I was, disappointed but i was looking forward to the rule five and hoping maybe i'd get picked and have a chance to be a platoon guy and sure enough i wake up in the morning it's you know 5 45 i'm about to caddy 18 holes and i get all these emails saying i get rule five they're on the 40 man it's really exciting so it was actually by houston and i went to spring with houston and i spent just about the entire spring with them didn't have a great spring and they told me right before spring ended that i was not going to make the team and it was kind of a lot of information to process because at the same time they told me that they told me that I'd also been claimed off waivers by the A's. I was in the dugout at Disney, the the Braves, and I actually had to leave the dugout and get on the next plane to Arizona. So about an hour after they told me, I was on a plane, <laughs> and I flew I, I flew back to Arizona. There were about five days left in spring, and the A's told me pretty much what I expected that they were going to give me a look as a right-handed hitting platoon guy. And if I made the team, my role would be to hit against lefties. And sure enough, I, they kept me, I kept me the whole year, had an unbelievable experience, got to be part of a playoff team. And it's really an opportunity that I'll, I'll never forget. And I, I can't thank the A's enough for giving me that shot. 
Yeah, that was that was quite the year, of course, for the A's, uh, and it ended in uh, probably not the the fashion that um, you you, uh, you expected, I guess, at the end of 2014 as well, which which turned out to be your final game. Um, but they that team surprised a lot of people, I guess, uh, and you, you had some some great players on it, of course, like uh, like Josh Donaldson. Did you expect Josh to turn into the the player that he did with the Blue Jays? Did you see that coming? Because I know he was a good player then, but I don't think he was quite at the same level that he. He became in, in 2015. Right. He was a really good player in 2013. I had never really heard of him. I, I don't know what I was looking at in the minor leagues. I just kind of had my head under a rock, I guess. But when I got there, I was like, wow, who's this guy? He's a really good player. And it turned out he was Josh Donaldson, the third baseman for the A's. He was hitting sort of down near the lower part of the lineup. He wasn't the established star, but he had a really good year that year. And it was really 2014 that he put himself on the map. Just had an unbelievable season. He was an all-star. And as we've seen, has turned into a superstar. Yeah, and, and you also played with Ioannis Cespedes, who, who got traded partway through the uh, 2014 season, I believe, for, for John Lester. Um, how was that in the clubhouse? Were, were people shocked? Did that really have the impact? Because I think a lot of you know the narrative around it was that Oh, the A's made a big mistake trading away Cespedes. Yeah, the narrative is that they traded Cespedes and then that our season basically plummeted from there. And I, I don't think that's fair. We, we being the A's front office, made a move that if we got to a short series or even a wild card game, John Lester was the guy that the A's wanted on the mound. And sure enough, we had John Lester on the mound. And we went into the eighth inning of the wild card game with a four-run lead. He he did exactly what the A's picked him up to do. And unfortunately, it didn't work out. But yeah, it's hindsight's twenty twenty, And I think there were some unfortunate things where Brandon Moss and Donaldson and some of our sort of big hitters the second half of that season might have been a little banged up. And it was just kind of wearing them down a little bit. But Unfortunately, the move didn't work out, but I I think that gave us a good shot at the time. It seemed like a pretty gutsy move, and I think it could have worked out. Things had maybe gone a little differently. Yeah, as you say, it was you know less than a couple of innings away from it all working out, really. So it doesn't seem like a, you know the, these things turn on a knife edge sometimes. And and that game, I think, might be the one of the most unbelievable uh, pieces of any sport uh, I've ever seen. What was it like yeah. to be there uh, with the team and just watch that unfold? So I was, I was definitely a bubble guy for that roster late in the year, but because of the wild card game, because you can reset the roster after each round, they put a bunch of bench guys on the roster for that game that wouldn't otherwise be on. And if we needed a full start in rotation. So I was on the roster, Andy Perino, Billy Burns. And it was just incredible. It was this playoff, obviously playoff, crazy atmosphere 45,000 people Kansas City they go back and forth with Seattle and the NFL to try to have the loudest football stadium and so they, that kind of carried over to the baseball that year and they were just being as loud as possible it was deafening in the stadium and again I had a pretty good sense that I would have come off the roster if we'd advanced but just to be part of that team and we thought we were going to go to Anaheim it was it was just heartbreaking the Royals were such a scrappy team that year. They fought. They kept. They kept battling back. It was. It was a really good team, and that that team ended up winning the World Series the next year. But it was a really competitive group of guys. 
yeah, they definitely had one of those those runs. And uh, I'm I'm a Giants fan, so <laughs> I'm glad it didn't quite work out for them that year. But it sort of did feel that year that like nothing could go wrong for them. Everything just fell their way at the right wow. time. What Baumgartner did that year was one of the most amazing feats of pitching that I, I've ever seen. Yeah, that was remarkable when he, when he came out of the bullpen in, in Game 7. I, I've never seen anything like that again. So, yeah, yeah that was, that was, was quite... It was, he was throwing a short rest. He comes out in the middle of the game, and there was no question at any point that anyone else was coming in behind him. He was the guy, and he was going to finish it. It was amazing. Yeah, it was phenomenal. Uh, so um, kind of after that, and uh, unfortunately that was your, your last game in, in the big leagues, but uh, you did spend a, a few more seasons in the minors and, and also uh, in Mexico, I believe. Um, so what what was that experience like playing in Mexico? I know you hit pretty well there. Um, so was it was it a good, good experience for you? I had the fortune of playing in a stadium that was at 7,000 feet. <laughs> so, so I... We were almost 2,000 feet higher than, than Denver down there, and it was a great place to hit. It, it was a really nice town. It was this mountain town, beautiful city called Puebla. I, I had a really good experience in the Mexican League. Unfortunately, I was just away from my family too much, and I got two little kids, and it was time to move on. But there's nothing about the league itself. I would have gone back in a heartbeat if it weren't for basically – deciding that it was time to move on but i had a great experience they treated me really well down there yeah it'd certainly be uh interesting uh, i know there's been lots of expansion talk about down there do you think that that would work out in if a team ended up in mexico city or, or somewhere like that there's some really interesting considerations to to take into account about mexico city first of all is the union and safety and all that stuff. And I, I, I don't necessarily want to get involved in that. But the other really cool thing is the ball and whether they would be able to level the playing field with the baseball. So I didn't know this. I was actually talking about this a couple of days ago, but I was totally wrong. I didn't know this, but the humidifier, the, sorry, the, humid, the humidor actually wouldn't work for baseballs at Mexico City because despite the high altitude, there's actually high humidity in Mexico City. So in order to have an effect on the baseball, they'd have to turn it up so high that it would make the baseballs so heavy that they'd fall outside the regulation weight. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I, did, I, did, I did not know that. So Phoenix and Denver are dry, so they can use relatively low humidity in the humidor and still have the effect, but it wouldn't work in Mexico City. I had no idea. I read this, this unbelievable article by Ben Lindbergh at The Ringer a year ago where he went through all these these things. It was really cool. But so I didn't know that they would have to do that. If you can't deaden the baseball, it might be sort of a crazy launching pad. I, I don't know if the air there is really conducive to regular baseball. I mean, we, we've seen that Olympic records are suspect when they happen down there. The ball flies like crazy in Mexico City. It took BP there and you know you get jammed or hit one off the end of the bat and it flies over the fence. So <laughs> I don't I don't know what a major league baseball game would look like. You you could make the left field fence three eighty, but then you have a huge outfield. It's not fair to the pitchers either. Um, yeah, I mean they, they I get that problem at cause as well now, don't they? They made the field so big that it's actually just a really difficult outfield to play. Yeah, exactly. Plus there's anecdotal evidence about balls just they flatten out 
breaking balls just don't move there. So I, I the state, the city itself is a huge fan base, enormous fan base, and it would open up the Mexican TV market. And I think there'd be a lot of money involved. The, the, the trick would just be figuring out how to make it normal baseball rather than something you'd see in a video game. Yeah, it definitely <laughs> sounds like quite the challenge. Uh, I wanted to talk about uh, another aspect of, of international baseball, and that's the World Baseball Classic, which is obviously of, of some great interest to us and our listeners. Uh, and you played for Team Israel both in the 2013 qualifier and then in 2017 when you, you made it to the main event. So uh, first of all, you, you actually played against Team GB. So what do you remember of, of those games and, and how they went? And what did you think of the British squad? They were really good. We we played them twice. It, the WBCP qualifiers are kind of a strange format, and it, it hurt us in 2012. But we ended up we ended up playing twice. Really good, really good, really good team. I ended up actually a couple of months ago. I ran into Antoine Richardson um, out in spring training, and he and I kind of talked. He was he he was on that team and. Good group of guys, a bunch of speedy guys, crafty guys. They had some veterans. They had some guys who could pitch. Really good game. It, we we put up we put up some separation there in, in the final game a little bit. We we had some took some good swings, got to their bullpen a little bit, but that was a really good team. Really fun to play against. Yeah, we're, we're hopeful that uh, maybe next time we can make it to the main thing because uh, it'd be be a lot of fun. And I think. Uh, Everybody, everybody got really into it, even though the the UK uh, didn't have a team in it. But it would be be a lot of fun to see us have one uh, over there next time. Absolutely, I I would love to to see him get in. Plus, I had the chance to talk to a handful of guys on that team, and really good guys. You know, we um, are fortunate enough to have already qualified for the next one, but love to see love to see Great Britain or the the UK get in. Uh, just really good, really good players on that team. I think we faced Michael Roth maybe twice in that tournament somehow. I think he started game one and he definitely started game one. And then he might've pitched a little bit in game three. I, I remember him from, I think I faced him was with the angels, just really good, really good pitcher. You know, he's a good college pitcher. just mixes up on both sides of the plate. Good change up. Pitch well against us. Yeah, and uh, we've got uh, PJ Conlon, who made his his major league debut this year as well. He's from Northern Ireland, so uh, another another major leaguer to add to the books. That who hopefully we'll see more internationally. Oh, that's, that's cool. Uh, so the, the Israel squad then went on and, and did really well at the the main uh, main WBC, um, winning winning the first pool. Um, uh, you beat Korea then, I believe, and, and then you got to play Cuba and, and the host Japan in the Tokyo Dome. So what, what was that like, playing Japan in front of their home fans? Yeah, I've been fortunate to have some really cool experiences in baseball. Some experiences I never really dreamed that I would have. I played in Fenway Park. I played in Yankee Stadium. I played at AT&T in San Francisco. But playing in the Tokyo Dome, was one of the most amazing things I've ever been part of. We went out at five o'clock for a seven o'clock game. There were already 40,000 people in the stands screaming instruments, coordinated cheers. So into it, every single pitch playoff atmosphere, the Japanese team, we, we were just astounded at how good these guys are. 
for whatever reason, there's this totally false notion in the U.S. that Japanese baseball is kind of 4A baseball. And guys like me that have gotten to the big leagues and maybe looked for some opportunities over in Asia, we know that's not true. But I think just in general, there's, this, there's that perception, which is totally false. But when you play against these guys, you realize that these are major league baseball players over there, and they are so good, they're so dominant, they can, they can hit, they can pitch. You know, we see a lot of splitters over there, but the atmosphere was so engaged, and it, it just felt like we were in the World Series. Yeah, it seems unbelievable whenever you, you see clips. I'd love to, to go to a game over there in person because the, the fans, I mean, it seems you know quite like a, a really raucous football game here almost. Uh, they, they get really, really nuts about it, don't they? It, it really is. That, I guess that's how I'd say it. It was like an SEC college football game, maybe watching you know, Alabama-Auburn or something. It was, it was really fun. And in terms of how the team did, obviously that they got kind of a bit of a, a following, and I think a lot of people over there in the the states uh, got got well behind them. Um, were you guys kind of surprised at how competitive the team was? Because you beat some some good squads. I know I think you beat the Netherlands in the first ball game, and they've obviously got some good uh, players um, through their their connections and the Caribbean as well. Um, so were you guys kind of a bit surprised at how well you competed, or were you? Where you all kind of you had a few major leagues in that squad, so it was not such a surprise to you. Baseball is a funny game. You play the you play this really long schedule. Baseball is really not meant to be decided in one game. So we had a team that, with the experience and the talent we had, we knew that we could beat anybody on any given day. It was just a matter of whether we would perform on that day, whether we would get the pitching we know we're capable of, whether we would swing the bats the way we were capable of. And it turns out that we played three really good games over in over in South Korea. And things came together. We had some amazing pitching performances. Josh Zide, who unfortunately couldn't be here today, came out of the pen at the end of that South Korea game and just a nail-biter of a game and held him scoreless for three innings. Jason Marquis basically came out of retirement and pitched great for us. So we knew we had guys that could compete. And it was just – they just happened to step up for us on the right days yeah you certainly had a, a very fun squad as well and uh i think uh one thing that john wanted me to ask about was uh cody decker and his mensch on a bench uh, what, what was playing with cody like because he's like a, a fun guy cody and i go back a long way known him for i don't know probably 10 years now we came up together in the minor leagues and Josh, Cody, and I were all on the original Team Israel team in 2012, and Cody and I played together in the minors and various places since then, and he is just one of the big personalities in baseball, just outgoing, engaging guy, brings people together in the clubhouse. You know, you know where he is probably before you, you can hear him before you can see him. <laughs> but he's just one of the great clubhouse guys I've been around, really really comes up with fun stuff to bring a team together. And the Mench was, it was really funny. In the qualifier, we had a little mini one. It was, you know, like a miniature stuffed animal, basically. And once we won the qualifier, he announced that we got a giant six-foot one, and somehow he was going to get over to Asia. I think he he put it in the, like a duffel bag on the 
Trans-Pacific flight. And next thing we know, he's, he was walking through the airport with a six-foot stuffed rabbi <laughs> in South Korea. And so the, the media over there, it, yeah, it's, it's kind of a novelty having over there. And it mentions a Yiddish word. And I think people were trying to figure out how to translate that into Korean, which I, I don't think we came up with a good translation. But there was definitely a pretty impressive novelty to have over there. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one of the other the Jew- legends of Jewish baseball we wanted to ask about uh, is, is Sean Green, who came over to the UK last year and, and participated in the home run derby we had in Hyde Park. Uh, and he looked great. He was hitting line drives all over the place, even years after retiring. Um, so uh, what, did you learn a lot from Sean? Did you have much contact with him uh, and just kind of your perceptions of, of him as a player? Really, He was around us in 2012. In, in the qualifier in Jupiter, Florida, when we lost to Spain. He actually played one of the games, but then the other games he was sort of a hitting coach. We learned a ton from him. I really wish I could have spent more time around him because in terms of the mental game and the physical game, just marrying those two approaches, one of the best I've ever seen. I, I really wish I could have spent more time and learned more from him because the time I did spend with him, I, I learned a ton. He's just very in tune with the psychological aspects of hitting. It's, it's, it's very physical, but over the course of a game, over the course of a season, hitting is incredibly psychological. And he has just learned some really interesting things in that regard. He wrote a really good book about, about sort of the psychological aspects of baseball, which I'm a huge fan of. And again, I wish I could have spent more time with him. Yeah. We, we spoke to him briefly and, and he seemed like a very, chill guy kind of in, intense but chilled at the same time it was uh quite quite the personality he was and he was so good too it was it, it was fun watching him he, he was really good yeah i was surprised i kind of did a, a piece on all the the guys we had over carlos peña and cliff floyd and sean and and i kind of didn't having come to the game relatively recently i didn't know a, a huge amount about him and I was I was amazed when I was looking at his numbers and kind of watching some of his highlights at how good he was because he's not not got the same kind of profile as many of the the big hitters from the nineties early two thousands but he was an unbelievable player from from everything I've seen. Yeah, he was. Uh, just on one touch on one more thing that you kind of mentioned the, the difference between the, the season long grind and and having these kind of one off knockout style pool games. Um, how how much information do you get about the other teams? Because presumably most of these players uh, are guys that you've not seen before, or, or if you have, you've seen them rarely. Did you get much in the way of scouting reports, or was it kind of going in blind? The staff that we had for the WBC last year, or last time around, our manager, Jerry Weinstein, our sort of assistant general manager, Alex Jacobs, he's, he's in the front office with the Diamondbacks. These guys put an incredible amount of work into scattering reports. It was actually some of the most detailed scattering reports I'd ever seen, and it wasn't through any of the normal channels. They couldn't just go online and find, the, find it the easy way. They did, they did really hard work to come up with scattering reports for people that we, for the most part, never played against. And so we went into the tournament in the qualifier and then the WBC itself with just this incredible wealth of information. And it was all because of the hard work of our, basically our staff. Yeah. It sounds like a 
very difficult thing to research because it's so easy obviously with the with the major leagues to look up stats and video and that but i'm guessing most of these leagues if they do have any stat keeping it must be incredibly basic compared to, to what's available at baseball reference or, or fan graphs places like this now yeah but they again they worked really hard and yeah we had i'd say we had basic stuff like velocity and pitch usage just general game stuff about speed or contact but even that was a lot of work for them to basically collect in leading up to the qualifier and they did a great they did a great job and and one final thing that that you've mentioned kind of um players who basically retired kind of coming back jason markey and, and sean of course um is that something that you would consider doing for team israel again at in the future or are you done now? Will you, will you be hanging up the cleats for good? I'm done. I, I'll miss playing, but it was time to move on. I had, I had an incredible time playing, but it was time to move on. Yeah. And, and you're going back to Duke, right? To, to do an MBA. Is that with a, a view to kind of working within sports more? Or have you got kind of wider, wider plans than that? Yeah, right now it's just about trying to learn as much as possible in the next really two years. And working in baseball would be an absolute dream come true. But right now, just focusing on on learning. Yeah, uh, well, I, I think uh, it's about time to wrap it up. So um, thank you very much for joining us, Nate. And uh, would you like to let people know where they can find you on Twitter and, and where to find the show on FanCred as well? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at, at Nate Fryman. Um, and we're on we're on FanCred, the launch angle. We're right now we're at Tuesdays at, I believe it would be five p.m. In yeah, uh, yeah. T- noon Eastern is five p.m. here. Yeah. So when people get uh, just as they finish work, they can tune in and watch you and Josh. Awesome. Yeah, it's right, exactly. <laughs> but it's live video, so don't watch us while driving. You turn on the audio or something, but <laughs> it's live video. So if if, uh, if we're driving, we can watch it on it's available on demand later too so great well i'm sure plenty of our listeners will be be checking that out and uh yeah good luck with everything nate and hopefully we'll be seeing more articles and and maybe uh you in a front office one day i think that would be a lot of fun that would be that would be incredible so yeah thanks darius thanks for having me no problem nice talking to you Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.